Good morning. Good morning. It is a uh, beautiful day that the Lord has made in terms of weather. And uh, just to reflect in with the worship team this morning, uh, something as, as simple as a, a sunny day, right, is uh, evidence of God's kindness to us and something that uh, that is cause for thanksgiving. So it is a good day to worship the Lord and to be together with you, with his people. And uh, it's good to, good to see you all, whether you're, you're visiting or uh, coming uh, regularly. It is good to be with you this morning. We'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 as we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount. We are about five sermons done or away from being done with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, not the book of Matthew, but uh, the Sermon on the Mount at least. So five sermons, and then we'll, we'll probably take a, a brief break from Matthew and do a, maybe a short series on on something else for a couple weeks, and then dive back in to Matthew chapter 8 as we see the authority of Jesus in a variety of different ways, a very exciting part of the book of Matthew. Well, I, I don't know if any of you have used this before, but Google has a pretty interesting tool called the Ngram. And what, is, what it allows you to do is it allows you to uh, see the usage on a graph of certain words in millions of books across the past five centuries. You could type in any word and it'll show you uh, how often that word is used over a very long span of time. It's pretty fascinating, right? I'm kind of a, a nerd, so I, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, for example, the usage of the word happiness increased 500% between 1700 and 1900. Right? 200 years, massive increase. The word sin, in contrast, right, had a massive peak in the 1650s and it's been on the decline ever since. I, on the other hand, right, self-esteem was hardly used at all, but due to the popularization of psychotherapy, it had a very, very large increase in the 1950s, right? It's, it's like flat and then boom, spike. The word depravity has decreased by about 700% since the 1800s, right? All these just little interesting things you can observe. And you don't want to read too much into it because there's a lot of complicated factors, but it's kind of interesting. And I think it's fascinating because it can um, potentially reveal what a society values or is thinking about at a point in time. As I mentioned, the sudden increase in the use of the phrase self-esteem reflects the shift in society to value the importance of feeling good about ourselves. But you wouldn't find that idea in medieval Europe, right? That wasn't the main point of life. Now think with me for a moment. If, if somebody were to run your prayers, the prayers of your life, through this tool, what might it show? What words would be reflected? How might it reflect what you are seeking, hoping for, desiring, asking for at any point in time? Um, perhaps some topics would be very common in your prayers. Maybe others, not so much. You might see that you've been praying for that one family member's salvation for years, right? You might be able to see that. Uh, you might see that your prayers tend to focus on the earthly needs of others, perhaps. What is it? What are those common themes found in your prayers? What is it that you're asking for, seeking, knocking on heaven's door for in prayer? What are the common themes, requests, topics, or praises? Now, this isn't the first time in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has addressed prayer. He's actually talked about it several times, not just in our text today, but he revisits it in Matthew chapter 7, as we'll see in a moment. But I think he's coming at this from a completely different perspective. 
than what we've seen so far. Jesus is calling his disciples to persistently pursue the kingdom of God in prayer. And he encourages us with the promises and generous character of our Heavenly Father, especially when it comes to the kingdom of heaven and spiritual things. So let's read our text, starting in verse 7. Here's what Jesus says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Let's ask for his help now as we come to his word. Our Lord and our God, our Father in heaven, we do pray for your help as we come to your word today, as we come to the teaching of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this text today. We thank you that you have given us something that we need to hear in these words today, something that we need to even do, Lord, for our benefit and for the glory of your name. So, Father, please send your Spirit. Would you, by your Spirit, illuminate your Word to us, help us to understand it, to hear it, and, Lord, to do it. I pray for your help, Lord, as well, that I would only say those things which, uh, which align with the teaching of Christ, Lord, in this text, those things which are pleasing to you and helpful to your people. We thank you, Lord, that though the flower fades and the grass withers, that your Word endures forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I think there are two big texts, uh, two big points, excuse me, in this text that we'll be seeing this morning. Two big things Jesus really focuses on. The first in verses 7 and 8 is the disciples' call to seek the kingdom. The disciples' call to seek the kingdom. And the second thing that we're going to see in the text in verses 9 through 11 is the Father's character in giving the kingdom. The Father's character in giving the kingdom. As we begin by looking at verse 8, we see that Jesus changes topic from the previous section, right? If you, if you recall, last Sunday we, we saw uh, Jesus is teaching about judging, about being judgmental, uh, about do not give to dogs what is holy or cast pearls before swine. And Jesus makes a pretty sharp turn here to teach on asking, seeking, knocking. And he's going to uh, kind of increase the speed at which he changes topic from here to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The chunks are going to get a little smaller most of you may be familiar with the text that we just read in the context of just general persistence in prayer. Right? That, that may be how you have um, heard this text kind of taught in the past. And I think that's a factor in what Jesus is teaching here. But I don't think it's the main point. I don't think that's really what Jesus is after. Jesus gives three commands to his disciples here. Ask, seek, knock. Right? Ask, seek, knock. And commentators debate uh, about whether... These commands reflect an increase in intensity. You know, asking is down here, seeking is here, and knocking is here. And perhaps they do. Jesus isn't really clear on that. Regardless, all of these commands, these instructions, describe an interested and engaged pursuit of something. You ask for something you want. You seek something you want or need. Right? You knock on somebody's door so that you might either go into that place or that they might be able to give you what you need as well. There's a goal in asking, seeking, and knocking, right? 
But there's also something else we need to know about these words. And I don't, I don't like to do a whole lot of in the Greek this, that, and so on because we don't speak Greek today. But sometimes it's pretty essential, right? It's pretty essential. Here, what's going on in the Greek is essential to understanding what Jesus is saying. These words, ask, seek, and knock in the Greek are present tense. They're present tense active words. And what that means is that they are describing a continuous, ongoing activity. It's not just ask once and move on, but continue asking, continue seeking, continue knocking without ceasing. Right? Continuing to do this persistently. That's what Jesus is saying here. And that puts a whole other light on this, doesn't it? Now, there is a sense in which these verses, these commands, do refer generally to prayer, right? That's, that's true. And if you were to look at Luke 11, which we'll do later, Jesus includes this same teaching right after the Lord's Prayer, right? So, prayer is definitely an aspect here that is true. But as I've mentioned already, I am convinced that Jesus' goal here is not simply to teach us to be persistent in prayer. That's not all there is for us in this text. He is telling us to persistently seek the kingdom of God specifically in prayer. And here is why. Here is why I am convinced that is what Jesus is saying here. Now recall in chapter 6, right, in the Sermon on the Mount, a couple weeks ago, Jesus has addressed prayer already. He's addressed the Lord's Prayer. He's addressed the private approach we should take in prayer. He uh, describes how we should um, understand God knows our needs before we ask for them. And here in Matthew 7, Jesus' instructions are much, much less concerned with the format of our prayer, but rather with the how and what of prayer. Now, he's telling us here in verse 7 that if we persistently ask, seek, and knock, we will receive it. Whatever it is we're asking, seeking, and knocking for. And that raises the question, what is it we should be asking, seeking, and knocking? Is it a Corvette? Is it millions of dollars, right? The prosperity gospel teachers would tell you, yes. Jesus will tell you, no. In verse 32 of chapter 6, take a look back there, a couple paragraphs. What does Jesus say? He's teaching us not to be anxious. He says, the Gentiles seek after all these things, meaning the material things of life. That's what the Gentiles are seeking after. And the implication is that we should not be seeking after those things first and foremost. What should we be pursuing? Well, Jesus tells us in the very next verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I don't think Jesus forgot about that verse in our text in Matthew today, right? I think this is a continuation in a way of what Jesus was saying in verse 33 of chapter 6. Jesus is not telling us to ask, knock, seek persistently and continuously for our material needs in this text. right? He teaches that in other places, but here in this text, He's telling us to ask, seek, and knock for the kingdom of God, for God's righteousness, spiritual matters. Additionally, if Jesus was simply talking about persistent prayer in general, or for material things, it really wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. We pray and we ask and we seek what we lack, right? If 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 your financial state is stable, you wouldn't ask God for more money, right? You ask for that when there's a financial need. Or when your job is going well, you don't pray for, you know, God to lead you maybe into a different career situation. 
You pray for that when you need to get out of that place, right? So when we approach material things or things of this life, we don't always continually, persistently pray for those things because we don't always lack them. Does that make sense? But spiritually, we always have lack. And here's what I mean. There is always an area where we need to grow in Christ. None of us are perfect. And if we are honest with ourselves and, um, and, and know our hearts and take inventory of our thoughts and our emotions, well, it becomes fairly evident that there are always ways that we could be more like Christ. If there's not, well, we're either perfect in this life or we've entered into his presence. And for all of us in this room, neither of, that, <laughs> neither of those options is the case. There is always an area where we need more refinement and change in our walk with Christ, where we need more holiness. We all have ways that we could grow in our love of God and love of our neighbor. That's something we will never have enough of and something we truly can be continually, without ceasing, always persistently asking for from God. And I believe that's what Jesus is telling us to do here. As Paul says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean for a person to ask, seek, knock for the kingdom of God? Well, I think it breaks down into two main categories, salvation and sanctification. Salvation and sanctification. As Jesus tells us in, in verse 7, to ask, seek, and knock, he's in part telling his disciples to pursue the kingdom of heaven. And a component of that is to appeal to God for salvation, to seek to enter into that kingdom. And this very picture comes up in Luke chapter 13. Um, put your thumb in Matthew and turn over to Luke 13 with me. Luke 13. We'll be looking at verse 22. Luke 13, verse 22. Luke tells us, that Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And somebody said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. And he goes on to describe those who uh, think they have entered into the kingdom, but have not. But... Focus in on what Jesus says in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter what? The kingdom of heaven, right? The kingdom of God. Salvation. And that only comes through the narrow door. Do you see the same words here? Seeking, knocking. This is the same picture of what we see in our text. Jesus tells his disciples to seek and strive to enter the kingdom of heaven through the narrow door and we'll be looking at that in a few weeks in Matthew's gospel. But Jesus is describing salvation here, the entrance to the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's not teaching that we work our way into the kingdom of heaven or that we simply have to search for salvation, that, we, that if, we, if we knock enough on the door, God will let us in. That's not his point. Really, what Jesus is saying is, as his disciples, we have a responsibility to seek the kingdom of heaven, right? Before Christ, you didn't just wake up one morning and, well, I'm a Christian now. You know, this is great. I'm in the kingdom of heaven. No. You came to Christ. 
You said, Lord, please save me. Right? There's that realization in the life of the believer that I need Jesus to save me. And we come to him seeking that. Right? Really what Jesus is describing is asking, seeking, knocking. That's faith and repentance. That's the response to the gospel. That's, Lord, please save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're just, just kind of interested in Christian things or, or maybe um, you think you're going to get into the kingdom by your own effort, by knocking loud enough on the front door. And, and friend, let me say to you in no uncertain terms, we're talking about the matter of your eternal soul here. Consider that Jesus is giving you a call to ask, seek, and knock on the door of heaven that God would show his grace to you and save you. That because of what Jesus has done on the cross and dying for your sins, you by faith will receive Christ. If you trust him, if you are asking for that gift of grace, he will give it. So will you ask, seek, knock on that door that you might enter into the kingdom of heaven? That the master of the house who is kind and compassionate will save you and let you in? There is nothing more important for you to seek than the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom, who is God himself. As R.C. Sproul says, we do not stop seeking the kingdom the day we are converted. We start seeking it. Right? From the day of our conversion forward, our whole life is to be defined as a quest for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this brings us to the second thing we are to seek. Sanctification, right? That's just a big word that means being made more like Jesus, right? In, in our context today, it's being made more like Jesus. Uh, growing closer in our relationship to God. Now, all through the, the scriptures is this theme of seeking to know God more and to honor him more. Uh, Psalm 27 verse 8 says, You have said, O Lord, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. There's that desire to grow nearer to God and to live a life that is more pleasing to Him day by day. If we've entered through that narrow gate that Jesus describes, if we've been regenerated, born again, if we've turned to Christ in faith and repentance, if we are Christians, in other words, then we must continue to seek God, to seek heavenly things. Our focus uh, must continue to be on the kingdom of God. Paul writes this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the hand of God. Again, this is what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of God. And we'll spend some more time, as we get towards the end of the sermon, really considering what this means as far as our requests might go. But Jesus is calling us here to persistently pursue in our prayers and desires the things of the kingdom of God, the things that are of eternal significance, spiritual blessings. And what I love here about these two verses is we don't just see a command. Jesus doesn't just say, ask, seek, knock. And that's the end of his teaching here. He gives us something far better. He gives us a promise. He gives us a promise. Look again at verses 7 and 8 at what Jesus says. Ask and it 
will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. In, in, in biblical languages, we call these divine passives. When you see it will be given to you, it will be opened. In other words, you're not the one opening it. The implication is God is the one opening it. And Jesus gives to his disciples in these two verses a promise that God will give the kingdom of heaven to those who ask him for it. That is a promise. That is a guarantee. This does not apply to the material things of life. This does not apply to being rich, healthy, and wealthy. What it does apply to is the kingdom of God. Because there are prayers that God says no to, aren't there? There are things God does not give us. But the sincere prayer to know God more, the sincere prayer, Lord, save me, a sinner, the sincere prayer, Lord, make me more like Christ. God never says no to that prayer, ever. And he gives us a promise in this text that he will give to his children those spiritual blessings. He may not answer yes in the way we expect or even like, but he will answer yes to those things. And in verse 8, Jesus even goes one step farther. And he establishes this reality as a general principle. He says, everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, will find. Everyone who knocks, it will be open to them, regardless of who they might be. And again, I think that this just emphasizes this text is not about general prayers for daily needs. Because God, first, does not hear the prayers of unbelievers. He does not hear the prayers of unbelievers like he does his children. Because their mediator is not Christ. They have no mediator. And so this statement that Jesus makes must mean that what's being sought and asked for must be something God always hears and answers. And that can only be the matters of the kingdom of heaven. And this is really, in a way especially when we're talking about salvation, the same thing we see in Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no qualifiers there, are there? There's no conditions there. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is a universal aspect to the gospel, a general call to all people to repent and trust Christ alone for salvation. Everybody should hear that message, amen? Everyone who is sincerely seeking the kingdom of heaven will find it. And make no mistake, right? Make no mistake. This asking, seeking, knocking, this is a free and voluntary act that you and I do in coming to Christ for salvation and seeking the kingdom. Um, we are making a conscious choice to seek Christ. We are exercising, ready, that dangerous term, free will. Free will, right? But we need to understand that term free will biblically. And I want to just touch on this for a moment, right? This is not Jesus' main point of the text, okay, is to talk about free will. Uh, but because I know this is a conversation that many of us are having, right, in our congregation, I, I think it's a helpful text to consider free will in the context of. Uh, we do have a diverse congregation when it comes to this topic in some ways, and so it's worth just a brief discussion. 
Right? This asking, seeking, knocking is a free and voluntary thing we do. We have a responsibility to respond to the gospel, right? We're not passive in that. And the term for this is conversion. That's the, the theological term, conversion. That's faith and repentance, our response to the gospel of grace, our free response to the gospel. And here's the tension. Okay, here's the tension. The Bible is abundantly clear that we cannot convert ourselves, right? We cannot get ourselves to that point of faith and repentance. We don't actually seek after God. I'm just, just flip over to Romans chapter 3 for a moment here um, as we kind of tie this up full circle. Romans chapter 3, and we went over this a few, well, I guess a few months ago now in our fellowship group studies, but Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, here's what Paul writes. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Wow. It's hard to find a more black and white statement than that, right? About our natural state. That in our natural state, nobody, and that's, that's a... Uh, an absolute word, right? That doesn't mean 99%. That means 100%. Nobody seeks after God by their own free will. So we're getting a little bit of a rub here, right? And there's an important explanation that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 6. Why he says nobody seeks after God. Romans chapter 6 verse 6. Just flip over a couple pages. And Paul writes this. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And notice what Paul says about our, our will here. It, before Christ, right, it was enslaved to sin. That means that slave was its master, uh, sin was its master, that sin directed everything it did, thought, desired, willed. Right? Nobody could nor would seek God because of this spiritual deadness and slavery to sin. Right? It, it, you know, it's, it's a picture of being a prisoner. Right? You're in chains. You can't escape from, from those chains. Right? We would use our sin-enslaved will to rebel against and resist God, not to run towards Him. Right? Because our will was completely oriented away from God, right? pointing over this direction. So this leaves us with one possible explanation that the scriptures plainly teach. God is the one who must change our nature and our will so that we can freely respond to the gospel. And we call that work of God regeneration, being born again. We see that in John 3. God has to give us a new nature that is not enslaved to sin, but rather that is inclined towards him so that we can freely respond to the gospel. That's what Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about when they describe the heart of stone being taken out and the heart of flesh being put in, regeneration, being born again, must come before faith and repentance because we would never ask, seek, or knock. We would never believe and repent unless God enabled us to do so. We would be incapacitated, right? We would never do this unless God graciously allowed us and enabled us. And frankly, I think that the Reformed Confessions of Faith, again, we're, we're, we're coming back, don't worry, but I think the Reformed Confessions of Faith actually paint a much more balanced picture 
than a lot of what, uh, what happens today in the discussion about sovereignty and free will and, and so on and so forth. Um, I want to read to you briefly a couple sentences from the 1689 London Baptist Confession. This is a Reformed Confession, old school, full strength, right? Reformed theology. It says that God calls His people out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He takes away the heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by His almighty power turns them to do good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Now listen to this part, okay? Because for most of us, like hardcore reform people, that's where we stop. But it goes on to say this, Yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely. Completely freely, since they are made willing by his grace. You see that picture there? Now obviously there's a lot to talk about here, so you know, after service, if there's more questions or comments, please, you know, it's a conversation I love to have. Um, but I think there's a challenge here for both sides of this discussion, right? If you are hardcore reformed, and that's, I'm happily there, right? I'm, I'm happily in that, in that theological camp, right? But we have to ask ourselves, is there enough room in our theology for a biblical concept of free will and responsibility? When we read this promise, Jesus says, to those who ask, seek, and knock. Now, if you're not comfortable or agreeable with, with reformed theology, um, is there enough room for God's sovereignty and salvation as you read this promise to ask, seek, to those who ask, seek, and knock? Is there enough? Um, do you take what the Bible says about our sinful depravity at face value, right? There's questions that both sides have to consider, and it's challenging for all of us in some regards. So let's not overlook the universal promise in our text this morning that those who freely and sincerely seek the kingdom of God, whether in salvation or sanctification, will receive it. That is a promise. And that should encourage us, shouldn't it? One commentator makes a, a pretty astute observation, right? We see Jesus' teaching about material things, and we say, okay, I'm going to pray persistently about those things. And yet Jesus gives us greater promises regarding our prayers for the kingdom of heaven, and we neglect those. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? But we spend more time, often, praying about earthly things than about the matters of the kingdom of heaven, even though we have such amazing promises in these verses 7 and 8. And Jesus even goes one step further in our text. If you can imagine that. He gives us even greater reasons to pray persistently for the matters of the kingdom of heaven. And it's the very character of God himself. That brings us to our, uh, our second point here. The Father's character in giving the kingdom. Point number two, verses 9 through 11. Now, Jesus begins by asking a set of rhetorical questions here, appealing to the parents in the audience, right, on, the, on that, that mountain in Galilee, uh, even though you don't have to be a parent to understand what he's saying. He poses a hypothetical scenario, right? He says, which one of you, if your child asked you for bread, for something to eat, because they were hungry, right, which among you would give them a stone? Can a stone be eaten? No. When it comes to being hungry, is a stone really any good at all? No, it's not going to fill your belly. It's useless, right? It's useless. You can't eat a rock. I think we'd all agree that would not be good parenting. It would not be loving. It would not be generous. And it certainly would not meet the need of your child. And in the next verse, right, verse 10, Jesus asks a similar question. 
Uh, which of you, if your son asked you for a fish, would give him a serpent? Right? Again, asking for something to eat. But this time, a, a snake is not just useless. It's potentially harmful. It's potentially dangerous to your child. That would be, be, be even worse than giving your child a rock. Right? In Luke's gospel, Jesus poses the same question with an egg and a scorpion. Right? His point is clear here. No decent or reasonable parent would give their child, right, in response to their child's request for something good, something useless or harmful in return. That's not the nature of a, of a decent parent, right? But then Jesus makes a startling statement, right? Here we are thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, pretty good, I'm a pretty good parent. And then Jesus says this, if you then who are evil, evil, he kind of pops that balloon pretty quickly, right? We're all far from perfect parents, obviously. But Jesus goes on. He says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Let's pause on that for a second. Jesus is saying, you are a sinner. You are not always really invested in your child's well-being. There might be times when you put your child's, con- or your, your convenience over your child, etc., etc. You are not perfect, is Jesus' point. And yet, you still know how to give a good gift to your child. You know the basics. If they ask for bread, I'm not going to give them a rock or a fish, a snake. If you then are evil, are able to give good gifts, how much more, verse 11, will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus is contrasting us with God. He's saying, if you can do this and you're a, you're a sinner, How much more is God qualified and able to give to his children what is really good? And, and, you know, I I understand that you you may not have had a good earthly father, um, but let Jesus' words encourage you. God, the Father, is always and abundantly good towards his children. That's Jesus' point here. God's character is absolutely, without exception, good. He only does what is good for his children because he himself is the very definition of goodness itself. You and I are not. And James 1.17 describes how every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. He does not change in his goodness. He does not change in his love for his children. He does not change in his relationship to us as our Heavenly Father. But it is simply who he is in his good, fatherly nature to give good gifts to his children. That's simply who he is. He cannot but do otherwise. He won't, right? He cannot do what is against his own nature, and it is his nature to be good. Psalm 105 says it so well, For the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. That is the nature and character of our God. And so if we who are sinful can still give good gifts, how much more will our Heavenly Father, who is the creator, sustainer, ordainer of all things, who's the definition of goodness itself, be able to give to you, his children, good gifts when you ask for it? He is far more able to give you what is truly good when you ask, seek, and knock. And we've identified that what we are to be seeking, 
what God promises to give us is the kingdom of God. But Jesus tells us at the end of verse 11 that God gives good things to those who ask him. God gives good things. And here again with the context as the kingdom of God, we should understand these good things as spiritual in nature. Obviously, that's not the only good things God gives us, but in the context, that's what Jesus is discussing. So let's dig into that phrase a little bit more. We've seen that salvation is part of the picture, but there's other areas I think we need to focus on as well as we come to the end of our text. Um, I think it's actually helpful to see what Jesus says in Luke eleven thirteen, which is the parallel account in Luke of, of this, this, this teaching. Uh, so turn there briefly, Luke eleven thirteen. Luke 11, verse 13. We see in verses 11 and 12, uh, the similar teaching of Jesus here about asking for a fish and receiving a serpent or an egg and a scorpion. And then Jesus goes on to say this, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Again, I think this just underlines the spiritual context of Jesus' teaching here. Is there any greater gift that can be given to God's children than His own Spirit? To have God Himself, in the third person of His triune nature, Living within you? Can you think of anything more precious that you could receive? I can't. I can't think of anything more valuable than that. That is the greatest gift God could give us. As one commentator notes, the Holy Spirit brings with him a partial realization of God's kingdom. For the unbeliever, it would have involved the Spirit's coming and the experience of salvation. And for Christians... It would involve the experience of being regenerated and filled with the Spirit. That is hands down the most significant and precious gift God could give to us. And it's not divorced from our salvation, right? He promises to do so to those who ask, seek, and knock. And, And from that greatest gift, the Holy Spirit, there are other good things, as Matthew says, that result, that flow out of that, that we should ask for with confidence. And one good thing that God promises to give His children is wisdom. Wisdom. Uh, James encourages believers who are in need of wisdom and guidance not to seek it in the world, not to seek it in their own hearts, but to seek it and ask it of God. Here's what James says. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So, brother or sister, if you find yourself lacking wisdom about a particular situation, which, biblically speaking, means you're not sure how to handle a situation in the best way to honor God or to love your neighbor, then ask God for wisdom in faith that these promises here in Matthew 7 are true, that God will give it to you if you are seeking it from Him. So, God promises to give us the Holy Spirit, If we ask, seek, and knock, he promises to give us wisdom. If we ask, seek, and knock, and he promises to give us spiritual growth, sanctification, right? Again, is that term, if we ask, seek, and knock. 
Now, as we heard earlier, at this stage in redemptive history, the, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. And so our prayers should be oriented along those lines. And I think the greatest examples of this can be found in the prayers of Jesus and of the Apostle Paul. Now turn over to John 17 with me as we look at what's often called the high priestly prayer of Christ as he prays for his people. John 17. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We're just going to highlight a couple verses in this text. John 17. It's a pretty amazing window, this chapter. Because as we wonder, what is Christ praying for in heaven? We have a glimpse of it here in his words on earth. His heart for his people. It's an incredible text. I wish we had time to read it all today, but um, as we look at what Jesus prays for here, there are a couple things that stand out. First, look at verse 15. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them, meaning his people, out of the world, but he prays that we would be kept from the evil one. As we look down at verse 17, he prays that God would sanctify his people in the truth. Your word is truth. He prays that we would be sanctified. As we look over to uh, verse 21, Jesus is praying for all of those who would believe in him after his death. He says, uh, he, he prays that we would all be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I, and you, that they also may be in us. So he prays for unity. And he goes on to pray for that same thing in 22 and 23. And then in verse 24, he prays that we, those whom the Father has given him, may be with him where he is to see his glory. The, the main focus of Jesus' prayer here is that his people would be holy, loving, and unified. Those are prayers aligned with the kingdom of heaven. How often do you pray for God's people, including yourself, along those lines? And then we see the Apostle Paul, who, who in nearly all of his epistles shares with the people he's writing to the things he's praying for. It's, it's really awesome. Um, there, there's a lot of places we could go. But we'll go to Colossians chapter 1 and we'll see this prayer of Paul, the things that he is devoting himself to persistently pursue on behalf of the Colossians. And I have no doubt he prayed for these things for himself as well. Colossians chapter 1. We'll look at verse 9, starting in verse 9. Paul says to the Colossians, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Notice there's that persistent, continuous prayer. We have not ceased to pray for you, he says. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Praying that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord that they would live in a way that is fully pleasing to God, that they would bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God, that they would be strengthened with God's power according to God's might, praying that they would have endurance and patience and joy. Those are the things Paul is praying for the church about. Those are the things that Paul is continuously lifting up to God on behalf of his people. 
consider those requests for a moment. Consider the things that Paul is praying for. If you were to run Paul's prayers through that Google tool, you would see these same things again and again and again. These were the things Paul labored in prayer for. He's praying for kingdom requests. Now, now listen, there's nothing wrong with praying for travel mercies. There's nothing wrong with praying for daily provision of needs or, or healing of illness. We should absolutely pray for those things. The question, though, is, is that all we are praying for? Is that all we are praying for? Or are the spiritual matters of the kingdom, like we just read in Paul's prayer, found in your prayers too? And not only that, but are they the dominant things that are found in your prayers? I don't think God said no to any of those requests Paul made for the Colossians here to you. God said, ah, I'm not going to give those saints more knowledge of me. Ah, I'm not going to let them be strengthened by my power. No way. I'm not going to help them walk righteously. God said yes to every single one of these requests that Paul made. And I'll be honest, you know, just, just a heart-to-heart, -heart, right? It, it is concerning to me as a pastor when, um, when Christians spend little to no time praying for things like we see in the Apostle Paul's prayer here. It's concerning to me because our prayers should reflect the Bible's emphasis, right? We should really derive our understanding of how we should pray from Scripture. And our prayer should reflect what we see in Scripture. That doesn't mean that we don't obviously pray for the things of life that are unique to, to each and every one of us. But the Bible tells us very clearly the things that we should be seeking of first importance. Do our prayers reflect that? If they don't, there's a problem, right? Our compass is off here. And so as we go back to our text in Matthew this morning, these kind of kingdom prayers, like we just read in, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, these are the things that Jesus is calling us to pray persistently for because these are the prayers to which God answers yes every time. God will not say no, right, if you're asking him to make you more like Christ. He's just not going to do it. Um, if, if you're not a Christian, right, again, let me encourage you, God saves all who call upon Christ in faith. That is a promise. If you are a Christian and you're lost and you're confused in life and difficult situations, you don't know how to navigate those things, God promises to give wisdom to all his children who ask for it. Go to the throne. There's a great phrase an older lady in, in Christ taught us, and Shelby and I say to each other, go to the throne before the phone, right? It's a good one. If you are not yet perfect, right, and deal with sin daily and want to be made more like Christ, be encouraged. He gives holiness and righteousness to all who hunger and thirst for it and seek it from Him. Why? Why can we rest secure in that? Because these things, these matters of the kingdom of heaven are God's will for your life. We wonder, what, what is God's will for my life? That's a question people ask all the time. God tells us in his word what his will is for your life. And he could tell us in no clearer place in Romans 8, 28 through 30. Turn there with me. It's just so good we should all read it. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Do you know what God's will is for your life? Paul tells us right here, right here. And here is what he says. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And what is His purpose? What is that good purpose God has? Paul tells us, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Let's, let's read that again. Those whom He foreknew, those whom are called by God, Christians, right? God's people. God's plan, His will for your life is that you would be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. God's will for your life is that you would be made more like Christ. And so if you are asking for things that align with that, like, Lord, help me to be more like Jesus, you can know God's going to say, yes, He just told you. Right there, that is His will. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you, do you have the same idea of good things that Matthew says as your Heavenly Father does? Are the things that you are praying for as those cream-of-the-crop requests, are those the same things that God says are what aligns with His will? Do you value those things most highly that He says are of supreme value, the matters of the kingdom of heaven? And do you pray persistently for them? Are you seeking, asking, knocking for yourself and for others like we read in Paul's epistle? Jesus gives us such sweet persuasion that we can find such encouragement to trust the good character of our Heavenly Father and to seek from Him those things He guarantees to give us. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your great promises. Lord, to consider that you would tell us without qualification that you will give us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Lord, that in a sense you already have. And Lord, it boggles the mind, but it strengthens our faith. Father, we pray that you would help us to be people who pray, who persistently pursue the kingdom of God your kingdom. Lord, that we would pray for salvation, not necessarily for ourselves, but for others. That we would pray for sanctification, that you would make us more like Christ. That you would give us wisdom, Lord, that we would seek that from you above all else. And Lord, that we might be able to persistently pursue these matters of the kingdom with confidence because you have already promised to give them to us. Lord, help us to be quick to pray. Help us to be fervent in prayer. Help us to be confident and expectant in prayer. Even, Lord, as we wait upon you to answer us. Help us to do so in faith. We thank you for the teaching of your son today, Lord. Help us not just to hear but to do that you might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.